0: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: And I'm Rose Fox, Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, bringing you the very best of book talk. And for the first time, we're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Today, we're going to take a call from PW Senior Bookselling Editor Judith Rosen, who will tell us about the nation's independent bookstores and how they're doing in the current economic climate. Then PW News Editor Gabe Habash will join us in our office recording studio with a report from the Digital Book World Conference and Expo.
0: But first, we've got a sneak peek at next week's Publisher's Weekly Bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Rose. So, we have some interesting stuff on the list.
2: We have some very interesting stuff on this. There's a lot of new titles on the list. We've been talking about how for the last couple of weeks, uh, it's really been kind of the same old, same old, the same right. Christmas titles and then the same New Year's titles. Uh, there's a, an awful lot of fiction that mm-hmm. launched in the past week. And the big story is that Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson's A Memory of Light head straight to the top with over 155,000 thousand hardcover copies sold in one week. That's amazing. It's very impressive. The only book that came close to those numbers in the past year, to give you a little bit of context, was J.K. Rowling's The Casual Vacancy. And that got a lot of mainstream buzz, which has not so much been the case with uh, the the Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson book. Right. On, the, on the other hand, within the, the fantasy, the epic fantasy community... Uh, this is a very, very, very big deal.
0: And this is something you're familiar with. I am. As, as you handle our fantasy and science fiction books.
2: Yeah. Uh, so the story here is that in 1990, Robert Jordan came out with uh, the first book in the series. And 1990, the, the late 80s and early 90s were very big time for epic fantasies. You would get authors like David Eddings and mm. Piers Anthony uh, really... Blown up the charts with one book after another In these enormous epic fantasy series So it's been 23 years that the series has been running. And um, what makes this a little bit unusual is that Robert Jordan died in 2007 and he left his series unfinished. Wow! And he had said uh, originally that he was going to burn all his notes that no one would ever get to touch it. His books were his books. But when he was diagnosed with an incurable disease, he decided that actually he really wanted the series to be finished after he had died. And so he left a lot of notes and he wrote the last scene of the last book. Oh, wow. So uh, his wife, who's also his editor, Uh, is a professional editor. Uh, She uh, read a eulogy that was written for him by this more recent modern fantasy author, Brandon Sanderson. And she thought, this guy really understands what my husband was doing. She got in touch with him and said, You're the one I want to write the rest, this final book. It was supposed to be one book. Brandon Sanderson, as this author, wrote actually three books based on Robert Jordan's notes because there's so much going on in these epic fantasy series battles among different factions a lot of political intrigue and a lot of personal stories to wrap up and when you've had over a dozen books that's a lot of characters and each one wants their own satisfying conclusion so A Memory of Light is the final book this is the end of The Wheel of Time and that last final scene is the one that Robert Jordan wrote so he still gets the last word Wow. And his his own series.
0: Oh, that's amazing! Now, how did he find? I mean, this his his wife was she an editor before, or is it?
2: She was actually. Uh, they got together. If I'm recalling correctly, mm-hmm. in 1980, she had met him at some literary event and said, uh, "You know, I I like the sound of your books. Right. You know, I might want to edit one sometime." And she gave him her card. And they got to know each other. They fell in love. They got married. And so she was the editor for The Wheel of Time from start to finish. Mm -hmm. She's always been the first editor. And Robert Jordan liked to say that every female character in the books uh, owed her a little something.
0: That's fantastic. Now, when you saw this book come across your desk, well, first of all, is this something that you were anticipating would have been as big a a hit as it is? Oh, it was clearly going
2: to be huge. When you look at the bestseller list, genre fiction is always there it's always at the top and it may be romance it may be fantasy and science fiction it may be thrillers or mysteries but genre fiction consistently sells this is what people are really interested in reading I and mean, you can say whatever you like about literary fiction or about engrossing fascinating historical fiction biographies memoirs it's all great but when people want you know the the Tasty snack food right, of, right. of genre fiction. Yeah, that that's that's where they go, and so it was pretty much predictable that it was going to do well. I'm not sure anyone realized it was going to do this well, and in fact, they delayed the ebook release three months, so the ebook is not going to come out until April mm-hmm. because uh, Harriet McDougall, um, Robert Jordan's widow, was concerned that the ebook sales might eat into the hardcover sales and that it would damage the legacy of the books by the last one not hitting the top of the bestseller list which she felt it deserved to do wow. but when you look at these numbers 155,000 books and, uh, and i was talking
0: and that's just hardcover right? and that's just hardcover it's yeah. only out
2: in hardcover that's that's the only way there is to get it right now right. and uh, i was talking to a publicist at Tor books which is the publisher and she says that uh, harriet mcdougall and brandon sanderson have been doing this 23 city book tour and at the launch event they sold 1500 books which is enormous i mean imagine your local independent bookstore mm. and and this was in utah we're not talking a, a major metropolis it was provo utah and oh, wow. they packed this bookstore with so many fans who were probably buying two and three copies to give out to friends and uh, they sold 1500 books and at every subsequent stop they've sold hundreds more so this is this is really i don't think that they needed to delay that ebook release to right. protect the right. hardcover sales in the end. I think this was just going to take off. And Tor's been promoting it very hard too. So they had a they had a book trailer for it that they were showing before some showings of the Hobbit movie, for example, because they know, they know that, that-, that that's that's uh that's the same fan base.
0: Sure. And you know, we, we've known it, let's say David Foster Wallace, who had a book published posthumously that he wrote, but was edited pretty heavily mm-hmm. by his editor. Now, this book we're talking about was actually written by someone else, but someone who obviously knew his style intimately. Right. Have you heard from from people out there, readers, uh, how this fared? I mean, how how good a job did he do?
2: from what i've heard he's done a pretty good job i'm not actually personally familiar with the wheel of time series mm. because my feeling on long series is that i want to wait until they're done i don't want to be sitting there with everybody else going you mean it's going to be another year what Sorry. if the author dies sure. uh, so now that the series is done i might read it oh, wow. Great. but i've i've certainly heard a lot of praise pw gave the book a starred review and the Great. reviewer has been a fan of the series for a long time, is very familiar with it. And really, I get the sense that Robert Jordan's fans are very satisfied with the work that Brandon Sanderson has done. His style is a little darker. Mm. If you look at modern fantasy, like George Martin's Game of Thrones right. uh, and and subsequent books, the Song of Ice and Fire series, for example, it's more dark, it's more grim. There's a little bit less tra-la-la, we go trumping through the forest and a little more what's lurking in the shadows. And Sanderson knew all along that he was going to be coming at it with a slightly different approach than Jordan probably would have had. But he's definitely working from Jordan's notes, a huge fan of the series, always has been. And again, working with the same editor who has edited the whole series also gives it a real feeling of continuity.
0: Well, before we move on to other uh, uh, books uh, on our bestseller list, I I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned that that fantasy was, was had a big time in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. What was happening then? What, why do you think that was? was oh, that's it a, a certain great kinds, question. Was it certain kinds of writers who were writing at the time that just happened to have their, their mark at the time?
2: I think it's more that, and this is totally off the top of my head, but I think it really reflected the political situation at the time. If you look at the what was going on in uh, the 80s and 90s, we had the Cold War sort of coming to an end and nobody quite knowing what was going to happen on a global stage. There was a, a lot of political de- debate and, mm-hmm. and a sense of the things that we had always known being pulled out from under us sure. in a way. Sure. And that is an atmosphere in which people are really looking for... When you're looking for escapist literature, you're looking for clearly dividing lines between good and evil, and it was it was a really good time for people who are writing these very strong, uh, very moral books in a lot of ways. If you look at uh, particularly the, the the works of David Eddings, for example, mm-hmm. there's there's this real sense of good is good and evil is evil, and that's how it is, and we know where we stand, and each individual person has their own moral dilemmas and their their own. Sense of being personally torn between good and evil, but on a on a global scale, mm-hmm. uh, you really get this the sense of we know what's what, and that was probably a very comforting feeling uh, for I'm people sure. who were dealing with the the sudden fragmentation of the Soviet Union, right. for example. Uh, with the the Berlin Wall coming down and and going, what's going on? We don't know. The whole world is changing. Everything is uncertain. We want to take refuge in a place where people know what's going on and everything is certain. Mm -hmm. And really, it's just a matter of your personal will and determination to Uh, satisfy your destiny and stay on the side of good
0: i'm mark rotella
2: and i'm rose fox and this is publishers weekly radio we're talking about this week's bestsellers and so
0: so continuing with fiction um as as you mentioned we have uh four books that have just hit the uh, list for the first time and I, i i see we have janet ivanovich uh And this is she's coming out with her first. I, I can't believe this. Her first historical romance.
2: Yeah, this is uh, she co-wrote it with Dorian Kelly. It's called The Husband List, mm-hmm. and uh, it's number three on our bestseller list for next week. It's actually a it's very interesting historical romance. I got to page through it when we got in the advance copies a few months ago, and uh, the the notion is that it's set right at the end of the 19th century, 1894, mm-hmm. and it's about a lot of. Uh, changing social mores at the time so this upper class young woman who doesn't want to be married off and if she's going to be married off then she still wants to be very independent and it's the the collision between that and the future that her mother envisions for for her which is very much set in an earlier time when you do what you're told and and women are their husband's property and so on
0: right right and this i mean i'm amazed at i i I thought she might have written something historical before, but uh, this must be pretty refreshing for her readers as well.
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be a big change, and clearly a lot of people are picking it up and interested to see where this goes.
0: And then we also have Sue Grafton, who wrote a uh, Kinsey and Me, which uh, she's she's known for uh, V is for Vengeance. Yeah, but- she has this
2: whole alphabet series. It right, right. started with A is for Alibi, I think a long time ago. My <laughs> right. feeling is that Kinsey and Me is just her effort to put off getting to the X book because no one knows how she's going to title it. Right. Uh, um. <laughs> I, I saw a parody many years ago. She's been writing the series a really long time. Right. But I, I saw a parody. It was, X is for xylophones that fall out of the sky and land. On your head, <laughs> killing you. Uh, so, every, every, every title has something to do with mystery or murder, but right. what's the X book going to be? I don't know. So, she's putting it off right. by coming out with Kinsey and Me, which with, is a collection of short which stories. Which is a collection of oh, short interesting. stories. Interesting. And it's uh, half the short stories are about Kinsey Milhone, who is her series Detective, and this very popular, right. uh, charismatic figure. And uh, there are nine short stories featuring Kinsey Miller, and it's very hard to do mystery in a, in a short format because you have to right. have the setup, the investigation, and the revelation all in a very short amount of time. Uh, but she, uh, are, the PW Review says they are crisply plotted. Each one has a clever hook, mm-hmm. uh, and they're, they're very successful stories. And then the second section contains 30s uh, sort or of semi-autobiographical stories that are about someone who is very much like Sue Grafton. Mm. And that's a, a side of the author that maybe her mystery readers haven't seen before. Right.
0: And finally, uh, f- for for fiction, uh, we have Collateral Damage, Stuart Woods. Now, this is his... T- now, of, of of the of the name uh, thrillers, this is his twenty fifth uh, Stone Barrington thriller.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, again, we're talking Shoot. about long running series, yeah, right, and right. They, these series have a sort of addictive quality. I think that once once you've picked them up, you just want to know what happens next. What happens next, and mm-hmm. it's the the equivalent of serial fiction, you know, when, when right. Dickens was publishing a, a chapter a month or whatever, and uh, people would wait for the ships to come over from England to America with the latest Charles Dickens chapter. Right. And, and it's the same sort of thing. People just really gobble these up. Uh, so this is, yes, the 25th uh, thriller featuring Stone Barrington, and it's got a terrorist plot, and the NYPD, and investigation, and... Uh, what the pw review refers to as a trail of carnage so there's there's plenty there to to grab the reader
0: i'm mark rotella
2: and i'm rose fox and this is publishers weekly radio next up we're going to be talking with pw correspondent judith rosen about how the nation's independent bookstores are weathering the winter we'll be right back Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox,
0: and I'm Mark Rotella,
2: and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Today we've got Judith Rosen on the line. She's PW's senior bookselling editor and expert on America's bookstores. Judith, thank you so
3: much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, Judith, uh, we're, we're talking about the year and sales, and um, you, you wrote first. You reported that the uh, uh, holiday sales are up for independent booksellers.
3: Um. That's right. They did better than most retailers across the country. Uh, According to the American Booksellers Association, uh, independents were up 8%, but in my, uh, my contacting bookstores, I found a number that were up way more than that.
0: Really? And what do we attribute this to?
3: Um, well, when Borders went out of business last year, a number of independent bookstores found new customers, mm-hmm. and um, those customers have stayed on. They came back this holiday season, and they kept buying. So, even though some of the stores might have been flat with last year, last year they might have been up thirty, forty, fifty, even sixty percent. So. Um, they have done very well overall, and a few stores were up even more than that. They were up like 10%, 20 30% this year, and some, like WordBooks in Brooklyn, which seems to be the hotbed uh, for book buying and book selling, is actually opening a second store in Jersey City. So um, some are doing quite well.
2: That's really exciting news to know that small businesses of any kind are doing well in the current economic climate. And also, given that we've seen some numbers about print book sales declining in general, it's exciting to know that bookstores are still doing okay.
3: One of the funny things that we found, because um, I had a couple colleagues help me uh, call some of the stores uh, is that many independents were actually selling a lot of hardcover books. We kind of thought that people were buying less expensive titles, but they were buying hardcovers. And I've heard from art book publishers that price was not an impediment, that people who wanted that beautiful um, coffee table book were actually willing to pay for it.
2: And these are people who are, again, going to independent bookstores for these hardcover book sales. So they're not going to Amazon with its steep discounts. They're not going to a, a, a big box store like Costco. They're going to stores where they're paying full price, you know, $25 or, or even $30 for a book.
3: Um, that's correct. And some of, as I said, uh, some of the big books were kind of pricey. Um Chris Ware did very well. His book, I think, was $50 at retail.
2: That's right, Building Stories. Mm -hmm.
3: And um, The Modernist at Home, uh, which came out in a slightly cheaper version but was still over $100, was frequently cited as a big book. Um, The Small Business Saturday that... American Express began three years ago, mm-hmm. It's the Saturday after Black Friday, mm-hmm. really helped give independence a boost. And the American Booksellers Association worked with publishers to try to help increase that boost by giving them some extra discounts from selected publishers on selected titles.
2: So this is really about the, the small booksellers because uh, Borders is gone and Barnes and & Noble didn't do so well.
3: Uh, no, it did not. It was down about uh, nearly 11%. Wow. Uh, uh, independence, yes, small independents did very, very well. That's not to say that everybody succeeded. There were some stores that are going out of business, but uh, for the most part, people did quite well. Um, There were a lot of folks that finally got the message about shopping local. Mm -hmm. Um, We heard that over and over again. And you might not be surprised to hear that local books did well at local stores. Right.
0: Yeah, right. I'm Mark Rattell and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW senior bookselling editor, Judith Rosen, about America's independent bookstores. So you had mentioned that Barnes & Noble were down almost 11% from 2011, though a lot of these independent bookstores were down. Well, I mean, were up. I'm sorry. Can you attribute, or do they attribute any of this to hand-selling and, and their ability to, to get word out in local communities?
3: Uh, hand-selling has long been a key part of what independent bookstores do. And you see that particularly on the children's side, where often... Um, individual booksellers will take their favorite titles and and when somebody comes in the store i think in children's especially a lot of times aunts and uncles uh, grandmothers and grandfathers really have no idea what to buy those children Mm -hmm. and that's where you see a lot of hand selling take place not that booksellers don't have favorites across the board which they recommend to their customers but uh, I, I've heard that over and over again that that people would make a certain book. Um, some books that were surprising to me: John Green's book, uh, uh, *The Fault in Our Stars*, which mm-hmm. came out in January,
2: uh, did very huge. well this
3: holiday season. The interesting thing about that book is many stores took pre-orders for it in December um, twenty eleven. And so it was one of their bestsellers the f- previous Christmas season. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's
2: still going strong.
3: And it's still going amazingly strong, and it was on a number of a best-of lists this year. Mm-hmm. Um, other books that came out earlier in the year that um, customers were grabbing on the children's side are... Um, Wonder, uh, which has done particularly well and deals with the topic of bullying. Mm -hmm. At the holidays, you often see, or we often see, um, classics that you might remember from your own childhood, like Goodnight Moon and Mike Mulligan, those kinds of books do very, very well. Um, And and people form...
2: People form these these very intimate relationships, these very close relationships with their local bookstores and booksellers, right? It's almost like going to the library and seeing your favorite librarian.
3: Uh, that's right. And some stores do tell us that uh, a customer will come in and ask for a particular bookseller because they know that their taste and that bookseller's taste are very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, just, it's like having that trusted review.
2: Yes. Right.
3: And they kind of know if you liked a one book, what you might like next. Because that's sometimes so hard to match up you know, what, you, what you want to read. A book can be just so appealing. It's hard to imagine, what could I read next that can live up to that? And if booksellers have that answer.
0: I'm Mark Rotelan. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW senior bookselling editor Judith Rosen about America's independent bookstores. Judith, you had mentioned children's books, and we were talking about, you were talking about some of the big books, and you had also mentioned two titles before. You, were, you had mentioned the um, Chris Ware book, and we had him on the show, and also the Modernist Cuisine, and he's been on our show. And what about Jeff Kinney's books?
3: Uh, Jeff Kinney has become hugely popular, but I don't think it takes me to tell you that. Uh, right. <laughs> He's just wonderful, and um, his latest book his latest book did incredibly well, especially in November uh, during that first what we consider the first uh, weekend of the holiday shopping season, with Thanksgiving, uh, Black Friday, Small Business Saturday. Um, that was pretty much the book to beat. It ended up still very high on most booksellers' lists maybe just below the top 10, but very high up there. The, um, the media also has its effect, not just radio, but um, movies. So Perks of Being a Wallflower, a book mm-hmm. that's been out for a while and has long been beloved, the movie helped push it up into the top list.
2: Uh, and probably The Hobbit as well, which we're still seeing consistently on the bestseller list.
3: Exactly, The Hobbit, which... I read as a kid, but I think a lot of adults have turned back to it, either to reread or um, maybe they missed it the first time around. And it's a so, great book they can read with their children.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that's been intriguing me as someone who reads a lot of e-books now is the question of what the e-book equivalent is of going to your local bookstore. And then I found out that there are actually some local bookstores that are selling e-books. How does that work?
3: Um, yes. Uh, local bookstores made an agreement with uh, Kobo, and um, they now have Kobo e-readers, which they were mm-hmm. selling uh, during the holidays. They came in in November um, and they have um two readers and now i think there's a third that's just been added but you can you don't have to have the e-reader in order to buy a kobo ebook you can i was going to say i just i just read books on my phone you can get the software for the kobo e-reader and you can their kobo software on whatever device you want to read on um, mm-hmm. i read on my phone a lot i hate to be without a book mm-hmm. um and uh, and then that that gets credited back to your store. Most independents are participating in the Kobo. A few haven't are still making that arrangement. But if you want uh, an ebook, you can either go online and get it from your local bookseller's website, or you can um, go to their store and download it while you're there. But huh. um, did, but that would be did, through the cloud, right?
0: <laughs> Now, did any of these Kobo or e- other ebook devices have much of an impact on on sales this season?
3: Uh, I think it was too soon for that to happen. Kobo did do um, a special for its its mini reader, and a lot of bookstores said that they sold a number during the there were two weekends when they had that special, and uh, and they said they sold a lot of them. One bookstore told me that. Um, they did sell a lot of them, but they also sold a lot of them to staff. Many of them are younger people who don't have a lot of disposable income, and it was their first chance to have their own e-reader. Huh. That's great. And they bought them for their families, too.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think e-readers have been marketed as holiday gifts pretty much since they first hit the market. There's always a, a big uptick in sales around the holidays. But these are, these are e-readers that people are buying through bookstores rather than going to, to some electronics store like Best Buy.
3: Right. You can get this from your, your independent bookstore, and they can help you through the whole process. If you're not sure how to download a book, they can help you do that. Um, after you do it the first time, you'll wonder why you had so much trouble.
2: I'm Rose Fox and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Where we're talking with PW Senior Bookselling Editor Judith Rosen About hometown independent bookstores So one of the things that has been a big concern for those of us in the Northeast Is how bookstores fared after Hurricane Sandy uh, I know that a lot of stores uh, had damaged inventory. There were Between the flooding and the fires, it's not a good environment for books. And, of course, after the flooding comes mold, which is not so good either. Uh, how how did that affect sales? Are there bookstores that uh, lost a lot of money at a time, especially during the, the pre-Christmas buying season when they'd be expecting to make a lot?
3: Um, Bank Square Books in Mystic, Connecticut uh managed to move a lot of its books from the downstairs although it couldn't save its downstairs it had two floor it had above its store it had an apartment and they just kept moving the books up <laughs> up to the second floor uh they also had an outpouring of help from the community and were able to revamp that store and get it back and running in time for Thanksgiving. And the community also came out to shop at the store. Um, It was pretty remarkable. And then on top of that, as if they hadn't had enough trouble of their own, they very kindly donated some of the fixtures that weren't entirely, damaged by the water but that had been replaced because they had to replace the shelving that the book sat on and they right. wanted all of it to match so some that wasn't damaged they donated to a brand new store that opened up about 15 miles from them monte mm. cristo also in connecticut mm-hmm. and um So that was really a pretty remarkable community, community, community event. Um, And Monte Cristo sent me a note saying that they had done very well this holiday season. They were really pleased. It was their first holiday to be open. Um, They were pleased to be able to work with another local bookstore, and they were pleased by the community response. So um, they, they were quite happy.
2: I can imagine. And it's wonderful to see bookstores working together with others in the area. I think people worry about competition or or seeing another bookshop too nearby as, as maybe stealing some customers. But really, the more people read, the more everyone benefits in the industry.
3: I think that's true. Um, I think when the chain stores first came on the scene and they did actually, stores like Borders, and you might remember back to Crown, many mm-hmm. of them have in fact closed. Um, they did actually target successful independents and moved to the same locations and did try to lure their customers away. Not all of them, but many of them. And um, independents have really worked with each other for a long, long time. Um, they see each other as colleagues. When a, uh, I live in Harvard Square, Cambridge, and when one bookstore doesn't have a book, um, another bookstore, it will send people to another nearby bookstore. Uh, people see that as just being friendly as part of the business mm-hmm. and not taking away customers or losing customers. Mm-hmm.
2: That's fantastic.
3: Yes.
0: I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, and we're talking to Judith Rosen. She's our senior bookselling editor, and we're talking about independent bookstores. And uh, I guess the good news for this uh, season is that they've done well. And uh, you had mentioned about the, the holiday season, and you talked to us about Hurricane Sandy and how this was, especially for the Northeast, how how the holiday season was kind of a boon uh, for them. Now, what about uh, now? Hanukkah? Did, did it help that it was... Uh, earlier uh, uh, in in the season?
3: Uh, It did, actually, because there are... uh, Because it was so early, it got people in the mood for buying early. Mm. Um, So Hanukkah sales started around Thanksgiving, which is always nice. And by having Hanukkah early for booksellers, um, maybe an unexpected um, thing that happens is that after the holiday they have more space for christmas titles or kwanzaa books things that happen a little bit later in the season so they can get all the books out they would like to have out and, and
2: keep next year i'm sorry go ahead
3: oh that way they can continue to have new things for their customers to find
2: and whatever. Mm-hmm. so uh, this year actually the first night of hanukkah is thanksgiving it's really, really early. Is it really? So I'm wondering, it's, it really, it, all all of my friends, have, I have friends in publishing who are scrambling to get their Hanukkah books out a month early because they're used to being able to bring them out in December and now they have to have them out in November. So I'm, I'm wondering how bookstores are going to deal with that when the Hanukkah shopping season starts before Black Friday. Oh, right.
3: Well, actually, uh, I know some families where... They like to buy gifts when the family members are there. So I think you'll see some scrambling that weekend. Yeah, probably. Grandparents are racing to find out that, oh, no, they don't have the new wimpy kid or Mm -hmm. something like that, whatever that equivalent will be next year.
0: Now so, what uh, about uh, I mean what about uh gift cards? I mean I seem to be uh getting more gift cards or at least my kids are getting gift cards from booksellers and this seems to be something relatively new uh, that i 've seen i mean is this something that uh, bookstores independent bookstores are promoting, and how well are they doing
3: uh Gift cards have been around for a while um, most bookstores started out with a uh, little paper gift cards, and uh, they looked a lot more like a a greeting card than they got as plastic gift cards became popular. Many bookstores switched over. It wasn't just um, chain stores that did that, and now I think you'll find a variety of both, but they sell an awful lot of gift cards. It's still a wonderful way to give somebody a book if you're not quite sure what they would really like to read, you think they should like to read, but will they want it? Um, so that it's it's a great. I think it's a great gift, and um, and people can use them for those e-books. They might feel that an e-book is mm-hmm. not maybe not the gift they want to give. It doesn't feel gift-like, but they can give a gift card, and bookstores that sell um, the e-books, like we talked about earlier, they can. Uh, customers can use those same gift cards for their e-books.
0: And now I've got a question about Oprah Book Club. Did that did her pick of uh, Ayana Mathis's Twelve Tribes of uh, Hattie have a, an effect on independent booksellers?
3: Yes, it did. It came a little late in the, in the season, but it didn't stop anyone from picking it up. Uh, there were the pub date of that book was moved up just to get it into the holiday season, and the publisher and booksellers did a great job of making it available to customers. She still sells Oprah still sells a lot of books and her you know her um, saying that a book is is really worth reading means a lot to folks. Uh, booksellers had been reading that book earlier. They were aware of it before Oprah said something, but just having that Oprah seal of approval really helped move a lot of books.
2: I'm Rose Fox, you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, where we have been talking with Judith Rosen, PW's senior bookselling editor. You can read her articles in Publishers Weekly or on our website, www.publishersweekly.com. Judith, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. Thanks, Rose. Thanks, Mark.
0: I'm Mark Rotella. Next up, PW News editor Gabe Habash will give us a report from Digital Book World, where the future of eBooks is being determined as we speak. Stay tuned.
2: Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, PW News and Tip Sheet editor Gabe Habash is here with a report from the Digital Book World Conference and Expo. Thank you very much for joining us, Gabe.
0: Thanks for having me, guys.
2: Well, this is very exciting that we're here recording in our office for the very first time and you just get to walk down the hall. That's right. It's That's really right. handy.
0: It's true. We can now say live from Publishers Weekly ra- uh, offices. Uh, that's
2: right. Uh, the heart of publishing in New York City. Uh, so you went to the the first day, the preliminary day of the Digital Book World Expo yesterday. And you said they were mostly talking about children's digital books. I didn't, I mean, maybe this is me not being a parent. It didn't even occur to me that there is such a thing as digital books for children. So tell us a little bit about how that works.
1: Yeah. So uh, yesterday was the first day and sort of like a lead in and it was almost exclusively uh, the children's digital market. So there were a number of panels, and uh, the main thing that uh, was the takeaway from the show was that uh, the digital market is a lot more complex than we think. And, you know, a lot of people just automatically assume that things are just going to migrate straight from print to electronics and that there's going to be a very smooth transition and that everybody's just buying e readers and um, reading digitally now. And it's actually a lot more complicated than that.
2: So I guess I've seen those videos of you know, the three-year-old trying to use a magazine like an iPad mm-hmm. or whatever because they grew up with e-books, but I can't imagine that's the norm yet.
1: Uh, it's not, and you know some of the figures that they threw out yesterday and some of the statistics um, were that teens specifically are kind of uh, reticent to go straight into digital, and you know a lot of people. You know, one of the common arguments, maybe the most common argument for print, is that. You know, people just like the feel of a print book, and mm-hmm. that seems to also be true with with uh, kids and teens specifically. And um, one of the studies that was presented yesterday said that teens were actually um, less interested in digital from the spring of 2012 than they were in fall. So they actually saw a decline in interest um, in the,
0: the people that they surveyed. Huh. That's interesting because everything we've heard is that the next generation will be brought up solely on digital, and here with their introduction to reading for most of them is is not it's it's print
1: yeah, and um, you know they they talked about uh, at the conference that um, you know children are mimicking their their teachers and their parents and they're using models, and uh, a lot of them their models are not yet migrated over to, to electronic yet so they're still lagging behind a little bit especially so in general children adoption of um, it's weird to say children adoption but uh <laughs> adoption of digital by children is actually lagging behind um
0: adults mm-hmm. currently and you had mentioned that there's been a decline in bookstore and library influence as a source of recommendation yes yeah, so,
1: so that was really interesting so the one of the things they they were mentioning was uh, influences on children and um, who is is contributing into is contributing to making the children buy the books that they buy or the ch- the books that they want since the parents are usually doing the purchasing and they the one of the studies done by Bowker actually found that um, there was a marked decline in bookstore and library influence as a source of recommendation and um, that friends and family took over the number one spot and that we're basically running on a uh, highly local word-of-mouth economy. So um, most kids are getting recommendations from their friends and um, less so from you know physical bookstores and from librarians. But on the other side of that, parents who are doing the buying for the kids are getting a uh, huge boost from schools and teachers and librarians. Um, so when the parents are buying, they're actually listening to the librarians and buying that for their kid. But when the kid, the the most influential thing for the kid themselves is family and friends. So if you go one step removed and look at what, who the parents are listening to, it becomes the librarians Mm -hmm. and the bookstores, but the kid themselves is only listening to other kids.
2: And and, does that include um, through social media? I know a lot of teenagers who are are using social media. Yeah, actually.
1: um, Well, the only thing they talked about with social media that, That came up yesterday was how uh, uninfluential social social media was for parents who bought books for kids and that 81% of of the recommendations that were listened to were from in-person recommendations and then only 5% were from social media. So there's a huge disparity between personal recommendations. People still want to get recommendations from the the friends of um their children's friends parents and from school librarians and mm-hmm. you
0: know There's still so there's still definitely value in the first hand
1: i'm mark rotella
0: and you're listening to publishers weekly radio right now pw news editor gabe habash is telling us about the news coming from the digital book world conference and expo we're talking about the children's books right now now has bowker done any study did they do any studies on who or what age group is you know are buying these books
1: yeah so that was another really really surprising statistic is that uh most of YA books are not being purchased by teenagers they're being purchased by people 18 and older and actually 84% of YA books were purchased by consumers 18 or older and what's astounding about that is that 80% of the respondents in the 18 to 29 actually the 30 to 44 Category said that they were buying the books for themselves. So these aren't these aren't you know thirty to forty four year olds who are buying it as a gift for you know the intended the intended writing. audience. They're buying for themselves, and so um, it's just amazing that eighty four percent of YA books are being bought by people older than the
0: intended market. Well, this is interesting because this is what's long been thought of uh, in the book publishing world for kids' books is that. Uh, older people are actually buying it not just kids and reading it and enjoying it yeah. It's witnessed by maybe the popularity of so many movies right. based on uh kids books coming out and here bowkers has actually been able to put some numbers uh, attached to it and uh what about um so so you said that uh, the the kids like print more than uh more than digital now what about teens' attitudes towards, towards, like, say, something for the books? The uh, I'm sorry, Nook's digital team shared a fact from uh, you had sent you the 2012 Figment survey. What, what did they talk about then? Yeah, so they
1: they're the ones who were talking about how slow teens were to embrace uh, digital, and that they were still lagging behind and still mainly reading uh, in a print format. And um, you know, that's because uh, it's easier to share books with your friends when they're physical books and that there's like a sort of collection and ownership aspect to, um, a lot of the series that, uh, teenagers identify with because they identify with the characters and it's such a personal experience with them and, you know, the identification aspect. Um, and then another really interesting fact that the Nook team had yesterday at the conference was that, um, that the number, uh, of eBooks, at least Nook eBooks, which was Barnes and Nobles, um, format are being purchased, purchased on device and less are being purchased online and then, you know, transferred through uh, to the device themselves. So a lot of uh, impulse purchases, it seems to indicate that that's happening and that, um, you know, consumers are actually tending towards full read and play titles um, and that they're very aware of levels of interactivity in the, in the digital content that they have and also very aware of price point, which is always an issue.
2: Right. Especially for teenagers who are using mom and dad's credit That's card. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Uh, right now, PW News editor Gabe Habash has been giving us the rundown on children, teens and ebooks. books uh, Gabe, you also had written a piece for us recently about the bestsellers of 2012. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that because uh, there it sounded like digital must be huge because print is uh, sagging.
1: Yeah, so in 2012, uh, we saw a decline in uh, unit sales. Uh, physical book sales dropped for uh, another year, um, which was to be expected. Um, but we we actually looked at the different categories. We looked at um, you know science fiction and uh, mystery and uh, history books and business books, and every single category that we looked at actually declined in. 2012 versus, uh, 2011 and some dropped, uh, you know, in 26%, uh, biography, autobiography dropped 26% last year and science fiction dropped 21%. Mm -hmm. But one cat, the only category that saw an increase was romance. And I mean, that's obviously the big book last year was the 50 shades of gray trilogy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, along with that, Sylvia Day had two books that were sort of like, Another self-publishing success that were picked up by Penguin, right? And so romance went up thirty-five percent last year, which is in wow. print only, which is astounding considering these other categories were dropping fifteen, twenty percent was the norm. And you know, a book, a category was considered doing well last year if it, you know, treaded water by dropping, you know, one or two percent. So it's just just astounding how much romance went up last year.
2: So my question is, if we. You know, speaking as someone who looks at a lot of romance, uh, I don't think of the Fifty Shades books as romances. If we took those out of that category, what would the romance numbers look like?
1: That's the other thing, is there was a there was a big uh, monopolization, shall we say, by... Uh E.L. James and uh, I mean, mainstays like Nora Roberts and Nicholas Sparks were up in the top 10 of romance also.
2: But with like 10% of the sales yeah. of E.L. James.
1: I mean, the 50 shades books were the top three and then the box set of the three book was the number four seller. So if you took out 50 shades, uh, the category would be a lot different. And uh, you know, there the 50 shades books, the three in the series were some of the only books last year that cracked a million copies sold each mm-hmm. in print. So yeah, it would be the I'm sure the 35% would be markedly different if it uh if 50 shades didn't come along last year and blow up the whole publishing world.
2: All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Well, thank you so much, Gabe, uh, for coming on and joining us and telling us a little bit about what's going on in the digital book world and with last year's sales numbers. Thanks, guys. All right. Uh, Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. Thank you very much for listening. been listening to Publisher's Weekly Radio Show.